0: Hello and welcome again to Metamorphosis, the podcast of Trinity United Methodist Church in Piedmont, Missouri. And in this episode, we will be talking about relationship stuff between husbands and wives. So just fair warning, uh, if you would rather listen to this at another time, I'm speaking today with Sheila Ray Gregoire, one of the bloggers at tolovehonorandvacuum.com, along with her daughter, Rebecca Lindenbach and their friend Joanna Sawatsky, they have co-authored The Great Sex Rescue, The Lies You've Been Taught, and How to Recover What God Intended. I really appreciated this conversation with Sheila, especially because she does not demonize men. In fact, um, they're making a very pro-men argument in this book that men should be called to more than what traditional Christian marriage and sex books have called them to. I... Loved this conversation with Sheila, as well as my uh, upcoming conversations with Rebecca and Joanna. And uh, I also really love this book and could not recommend it enough. Um, Please listen. Please go get the book. Um, I think it really should be required reading for most Christians, especially Christians who are early in their marriage or um, about to get married. So let's hear what Sheila has to say about the most comprehensive survey of Christian women about their sex and marriages ever conducted.
1: So I have been blogging since 2008. I started writing for magazines and I did some speaking and I wrote some small books in the early 2000s. And then I launched my blog to love, honor, and vacuum when you feel more like a maid than a wife and a mother in 2008. And I was mostly doing like the mommy stuff, you know, housework and marriage and parenting and all that. And slowly I started noticing that whenever I posted on sex, I got a lot more traffic. And (laughs) my (laughs) husband and I um, speak at marriage conferences and we always did the sex talk because I'll talk about anything, it really doesn't bother me. And he's a doctor, so it just was a good fit. And no one else ever wanted to do the sex talk. So we started getting pushed in that direction And uh, in 2012, I decided I would write a book about it. So I wrote The Good Girl's Guide to Great Sex. And my blog has slowly morphed into more and more, how do we have a healthy biblical sexual ethic and how do we experience real passion in our marriages? So that's what I've been writing about. And it's been, it's been a lot of fun. I've discovered a lot. I've learned a lot because I never thought I would like, you don't grow up thinking, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the sex person. Like that's just weird. Right. So, (laughs) And to make it even weirder, my daughter and son-in-law work for me too. And so Rebecca and I do our podcasts together about sex all the time. And she's one of my co authors on my new book. So we, it's just a weird thing all around. Um, but one of the things that we were really noticing, probably about two years ago, was that it didn't matter how much healthy teaching I gave, people still had the same issues.
0: Hmm.
1: And, um, and we asked the question, is there something else going on? Because you can add healthy stuff upon healthy stuff. But if the foundation is rotten, it's not going to fix it. And so what we decided to do with our new project is we surveyed 20,000 Christian women. It's the largest survey that's ever been done, um, looking at their sexual and marital satisfaction, but specifically looking at are there certain teachings in the evangelical world that are causing women's sexual satisfaction and marital satisfaction to plummet? And if there are, how can we reframe those teachings so that they better reflect Christ? And that's what we're trying to do. And we, we it, it was really interesting what we found in that survey. So we turned it into, into a book, which is a really fun read and very validating, I hope. so. Yeah,
0: good. And that book comes out in March of this year, correct?
1: Yes, March 2nd. Yeah. Okay,
0: yeah, that's very exciting, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so let's go ahead and and dive into talking about the book then. So you surveyed 20,000 women. I'm assuming those are um, readers of your blog who maybe responded to a survey through your blog
1: minority were we tried very very hard to get them not all from my blog because we didn't want to we didn't want all people who have been reading what I've been saying for years so we had lots of incentives for other people to share the survey uh, link and so less than half were from my blog which we were happy about
0: oh yeah. good yeah that is a very huge survey sample so why were women your main focus in particular
1: um, well something that I call the orgasm gap and I hope I'm allowed to say that word but <laughs> <laughs> um, basically when when you ask men about 95% of, of married guys you know reach climax almost always or always during a sexual encounter but the corresponding number for women is only 48%. So that's a huge gap. And we do believe there's always going to be a, a a slight gap just because of biology and hormones and all kinds of things. But it shouldn't be that high. <laughs> so what we were looking at is okay. What is causing this gap in evangelical women, and how can we bridge that gap?
0: Gotcha. Okay, and so and hence the great sex rescue. <laughs> um, so why does sex need rescuing, and what are we rescuing it from?
1: Well, I think that a lot of women and a lot of couples say that you get married and you think sex is going to be this amazing thing. And then we just encounter all kinds of problems. I know that was certainly our story. Um, when when my husband and I got married, we did everything right. We did what we were supposed to do. We were both virgins on our wedding night. And as I share in this book and in some of my other books, um, I had a horrible case of vaginismus, which most people don't even know what that word means. So that's one of the things we're trying to do with this book too, is normalize some of this stuff. But, um, you know, vaginismus is a sexual pain disorder that, twice as many christian women experience as the general population like it is far more common among christians than it is in the general population so this is something that's specific to our women there's something (laughs) that's going on here and that was certainly our story we had a we had a lot of trouble that we had to overcome and i think because of that god has given me uh, the gift of being able to understand when women have trouble with this stuff and also, because we had to overcome it, we had to do a lot of work of sorting out what is it that we believe about sex? How can we get rid of the bad stuff? How can we really renegotiate this amongst ourselves and and discover what God, what God really wants for passion? And that helped a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. I'm glad you say that what God wants for passion, you know, because I think that especially among Christians, and, and this may be some of what you found in your survey, um, we tend to want to separate you know, the spirit from the body, you know, the spirit's good. The body's bad. And then by extension, well, sex is bad. Sexual desire or satisfaction is bad. You know, it's something we should feel kind of guilty about or apologize for. Um, and so, so yeah, I'm glad that you're taking a biblical focus on that and and recognizing that our bodies are not necessarily inherently bad, you know, um, that we don't need to have that separation or that unhealthy attitude toward it. Um, so of the research that you conducted through this survey or through other means, um, what was the most surprising finding?
1: Um, what, well, one of the things that we found was that the obligation sex message. And what I mean by that is the idea that women need to give their husband sex when their husbands want it. It's often discussed in evangelical circles as the first Corinthians seven, three to five thing. Do not deprive each other except for a time. Using that verse to tell women you need to have sex with your husband, that results in an increased rate of sexual pain to the same statistical significance that prior abuse does. Wow. So telling women you're obligated to have sex with your husband has the same statistical effect on her sexual pain rates as if she had been abused. Now, I am not saying that's as bad as abuse. Okay, like if you've been abused, that has so much, trauma has so much that goes into all kinds of different areas of your life and I'm not trying to minimize that. But what I am saying is when it comes to sexual pain, it's, it's statistically the same.
0: Sure, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's such an eye-opening, mind-blowing point, you know, that again, you're not minimizing the trauma of, of sexual abuse, But rather, you're kind of lifting up, so to speak, the trauma of that obligatory sex message, you know, and I've certainly heard that many times.
1: Well, I want because it's not that I don't believe those verses. It's just that I don't think they say what we think they say. Sure. Let me me, me deconstruct them a little bit. Um, If you if you're if we're going to say that those verses imply that we, we are not supposed to deprive each other of sex, it begs the question, what is sex? Which is actually a fairly important question because i'm not going to do this to you so do not worry but if i were to ask you did you have sex last night which again i won't ask you but if i were to chances are you're thinking something very specific in your head okay and i'm i'm going to use some words so please if you have kids listening do not like shut this off now okay so i'm going to use some some words but what you're picturing is You know, man puts his thing, his penis into a woman's vagina and moves around until he reaches climax. That's what we think sex is. Now, remember the orgasm gap I told you about. How, you know, there's a 47 point orgasm gap. And what we found is that very, very few women reach orgasm through intercourse alone. Most women who reliably reach orgasm reach it in other means. And even if they do reach orgasm through intercourse, they tend to need a lot of foreplay. So, (laughs) if we define sex as simply him doing this to her, we're leaving her completely out of the picture. It's like she could be lying there counting ceiling tiles and that still counts as sex. And so what I wanna suggest is that that idea, you know, man puts penis into her vagina, and moves around till the climaxes, that's one-sided intercourse. And that's not a biblical view of sex. If we look at the biblical view of sex, what we see from Genesis four is that it's a deep knowing Adam knew his wife, and it's the same word that's used throughout the Psalms where David says, you know, search me and know me sex, God made sex to be a deep intimate knowing, and that passage in first Corinthians seven shows us that sex is mutual, and that sex, you know, is pleasurable for both. And so if we're going to say, do not deprive each other of sex, what we mean is do not deprive each other of a mutually pleasurable, intimate experience. So it's not a command for her to just give him intercourse where she feels nothing. Mm. You know, it's, it's telling us that this is supposed to be a mutually pleasurable, intimate experience. And we've really distorted the meaning of it by taking that to mean that she has to do something, even if she doesn't want to, and even if it does nothing for her.
0: Yeah, I think that's extremely well said. Um, so along those same lines, you know, your book explores some of the widely held beliefs and the damaging beliefs that Christian, Christians in general and Christian women have about sex. But what would you say is one of the most damaging, widely held beliefs about sex and marriage in evangelical culture? And how does it do damage?
1: Yeah. Well, one of the ones uh, that we hear all the time is all men struggle with lust. It's every man's battle. And um, a lot of women believe that. And what, as soon as you believe it, again, your orgasm rates go down. Um, your ability to trust your husband goes down. Your, um, uh, your marital satisfaction goes down. You're less likely to feel heard during conflicts, all kinds of negative things. Um, we have, there's multiple, we've got lots of charts in the book that can show you all the bad things that happen um but interestingly with that particular belief is it hurts women's orgasm rates even if they only hear it but don't believe it mm-hmm. so if you're in a culture which is always teaching you that all men lust it's every man's battle women are going to orgasm less than if you're in a culture which teaches that you know what some people lust you know women as well as men but it is not a struggle that you can't get over The power of the Holy Spirit can help you, and God simply wants you to respect each other as made in the image of God. And when you're in that kind of a culture, women are going to be more sexually responsive than being in a culture which says men are incapable of looking at you as a whole person.
0: Wow, that's so well put. Um, You know, I I appreciate the allusion to every man's battle. That's... (laughs) it's probably not an exaggeration to say, um, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it's probably not an exaggeration to say that you are now fighting every woman's battle against every man's <laughs> battle. Um, yes. Yeah. yeah, do you want to comment any further on that? Um, yeah,
1: I, I would. Thank you for the lead-in. But um, <laughs> the one, we, we, we did this research project in several prongs. So one of the prongs was our survey of 20,000 women. But then what we also did was we looked at other studies, other peer-reviewed studies of what makes healthy sexuality. And we combined that we've said, okay, so we now know the marks of healthy sexuality and we know what hurts women's sexuality. And we created a rubric, 12 marks of healthy sexuality um, and then marked and then created what was a zero to four. So we explained what a zero to four was. You can download that rubric and our scoring sheet, by the way, I will give you a link where people can get a hold of that. They can look at that. Um, but we, but so we created this rubric and then we took the 10 best-selling Christian marriage books and the top six sex books, excluding my own, and we applied the rubric to it. And what we found was that very few books did well. Um, every man's battle failed miserably. So did Love and Respect, For Women Only, His Needs, Her Needs, Power of a Praying Wife. They all did very badly, Active Marriage. Um, Some books did quite well, Gift of Sex by the Penners, Boundaries in Marriage, Sacred Marriage, Intimate Issues. Some books did do well, but a lot of books did very, very badly because they they include so many of these negative teachings that are distortions of what biblical sexuality is and that end up hurting um, couples' experience of real passion.
0: Yeah, I mean... I've done the, I've read the Everyman's Battle book and done the study and it's been several years. Um, but from what I recall, um, you know, it did have a lot of these harmful messages. And I think if I reread it today, I would probably probably be aghast. Um, and hearing your description, it just makes so much sense um, why books like that and ideas like that can be so problematic. Because yeah, it's emphasizing so much Kind of this male centered, male centric view of sex and relationships. And um, the way you put it was so beautiful that, you know, you're if a woman's not seen as a full person, mm-hmm. it's going to have all kinds of harmful effects on the relationship on the intimacy. Um, and, and so if you're teaching men, or if you're, you know, teaching a culture, or part of a culture, that's, trying to say, well, men struggle with lust, and so therefore women need to obligatorily have sex every so often to sate their desire. Um, That's by definition objectifying and not seeing a woman as a whole person, which is going to then have all of those effects. Um,
1: Yeah, every man's bottle literally calls women methadone. It says you can be a merciful vial of methadone for him when his temperature is rising. And I can't think of anything more dehumanizing Because what that's really saying is what he really wants is to lust after that hot girl in porn or that hot jogger. But what he'll do to be satiated is he'll have sex with you. So he'll get what he doesn't really want, but it'll make it okay so that he doesn't have to take what he really wants. And that's just such a horrible message, you know? And interestingly, um, part of what we looked at in the great sex rescue and, and, as we talked about some of the focus groups that we had with women exploring more how this affected them. But in the book, the solution to lust is to bounce your eyes. So it's to make sure that you never look at a woman. But if you remember the story of Hagar in the Old Testament, here is a woman, she was, she was Sarah's handmaiden. And probably most of us know the story. But Abraham was promised this child. This child wasn't coming. And then Sarah suggests, why don't you take Hagar, my handmaiden, and have a child with her? Abraham does. Now, if Hagar was the servant, she likely had no say in that. She, she would not have been able to say no. And so she goes in with Abraham. She has Ishmael. And then when Isaac, the child of the promise, is born, um, Sarah insists that Ishmael and Hagar get kicked out and and so they go and they end up in the desert and hagar has an encounter with god and she is the one to whom scripture gives the honor of being the first person to name god in scripture and she says she calls him the god who sees me you know that is hagar's name for god this woman who had been sexually abused who had been dehumanized, who had been used in every way, and then discarded. And she says, he is the God who sees me. And that is God's heart for all of us, for women and men, that we be truly seen. That is what intimacy is. And when you look at Jesus' encounters with women, it's amazing how he sees them. He talks to the Samaritan woman. He sees the woman who is bleeding and picks her her out of the crowd. He sees women. And yet every man's battle says, don't see women. Hmm. Bounce your eyes ignore them, avoid them. Instead of saying the way through lust is to respect women and to see them as fully made in the image of God.
0: Yeah, that's so very well said. Um, yeah, and I think that it might be helpful too, or at least I've found it to be personally helpful to distinguish between attraction and lust. Um mm-hmm. I think it's in the book, The uh, Good and Beautiful Life, if I recall correctly, by James Bryant Smith, but he talks about lust and says, you know, he tells an anecdote of him and his brother walking along the beach, and they see this very beautiful woman in a bikini jogging or something, um, and or walking by, and they kind of look at each other like, wow, and then they continue their conversation, you know, and he says, you know, this, I tell this story to illustrate that it's only natural that we will be attracted to other people or recognize other people's attractiveness and beauty. But when that, but here's where that turns into lust, you know? Um, And so I, I do, I kind of feel like looking back or thinking back to a lot of uh, my experience, sometimes we fail to distinguish between attraction and lust. And that then leads us to really demonize our attraction and, and turn it into, well, just look away, don't look. And then that, isn't a very healthy approach is at least that's what I'm hearing from, from you. Is that, would you agree with that or?
1: Yeah. And I'm so glad you brought that up because what you're really saying, and this is what I wish more men would understand is that that message that all men lust is so incredibly demeaning to men. (laughs) It's not just demeaning to women, it's demeaning to men. And a big part of our lust chapter in the great sex rescue is saying, Hey guys, noticing a woman is beautiful is not lusting seeing a beautiful woman is not lusting. You know, lusting is to deliberately look with intent. It isn't, looking at a beautiful woman is not even lusting. It's looking with the purpose of lust. That's what lusting is. And when Jesus is, is said, you know, says, you know, whoever looks on a woman with lust in, in his heart, it's not whoever sees a woman or whoever looks at a woman, it's whoever looks at a woman with lust in his heart. So we have demonized what is normal sexual attraction. And I think we have layered so many levels of shame on top of men that have then get put onto women because men can't handle it. And there's just so much shame all to go around and we need to just get rid of all that, which is what (laughs) we're trying to do in the book and get back to what is is the real godly um, principle here.
0: Yeah, wonderful. Um, So you mentioned a little bit about this earlier, um, but Christian women, you said have twice the rate of sexual pain disorders compared to the Mm -hmm. general population. Did you find in your research a particular cause for that?
1: Yeah, I mean the obligation sex message is a big one, but it's not the only one. Um, another big one is uh, the idea that that boys are going to want to push your sexual boundaries. So when we tell teenage girls that, um, we call that the gatekeeping message, uh, where and and we teach this to girls all the time. You know, boys are going to want to push your sexual boundaries, so you got to be really careful when you're making out because he's not going to be able to stop. And um, when we tell girls that, again, what we're doing is we are making any kind of sexual interaction as a negative, dangerous thing for her. Now, I do believe that we need to figure out our sexual boundaries, but that should be a message that's given to both girls and, and guys, not just to girls. And it should be recognized that if a guy is pushing your sexual boundaries, that's a red flag and that's not healthy. But instead, what we hear is, this is something which all boys do. And so you are responsible for stopping it. Mm. And we talked to so many women who said, you know, that their experience when they were teenagers and dating is they would get into this makeout situation and the guy would be enjoying himself. He's having a great time, but in their heads, what these women, with these young girls are thinking is, okay, is he getting out of control yet? Should I stop it yet? Should I stop it yet? And so it's almost like they're outside of their bodies watching what is going on, trying to stay in control. So they train themselves to always be in control. And then when you get married, that doesn't stop. And so it's like these women have never figured out how to get aroused, how to let go, how to just enjoy things, because it's always been something which is threatening where they have to stay in control. And that's a big problem that a lot of women have, and it's not easy to get over.
0: Yeah, that, that makes perfect sense. I mean, you're, you're not going to be able to um, have a satisfying sexual experience if you're really uptight and and not relaxed. And, um, and that, that makes perfect sense the way that we give that message well, you've got to be in control and you've got to watch out for this. And we put it all on girls. And I, I agree completely. It really should be uh, a message we deliver to both boys and girls that, you know, you both need healthy boundaries and you both need to establish those and respect those, um, (laughs) So so you begin uh, the book, The Great Sex Rescue, by saying that one of the big problems leading to terrible sex is that we define sex wrong. And you talked a little bit about this earlier, um, but do you want to expand on what you mean by that, that we define sex wrong?
1: Yeah, and I, I, yeah, I, already, I already talked about how we see it as, as just intercourse, but I do want to say, too, that um, when we talk about sex as something which a guy needs and that sex is mostly intercourse what often happens is that she feels guilty if she is not enjoying things the way he is and then she feels guilty if she needs something else and so we tend to see sex from a very um from a guy's point of view like both men and women see sex from a from from a boy's or a guy's point of view so we think this is what is supposed to feel good and anything else is extra and she doesn't want to be selfish by asking for what's extra. Mm. Um, and we we have a lot of stories in there on how women feel very very self conscious if they if they need something more, and especially when you're first getting married. I think of it like when you're first married, it's kind of like you have this huge bank account to draw on (laughs) because everyone's excited about sex. It's like the honeymoon sex. This is going to be great. It's very unlikely. She's going to say anything if she doesn't enjoy it because she's going to feel awkward. She's not going to know what to say. I mean, how do you tell him what you want when you're not even sure what you want? Everything is just so awkward, but Hey, we're finally doing it. So she doesn't say much. And then slowly the bank account dwindles (laughs) because you're using all this goodwill and Five years, 10 years into it, she's just sick of it because it doesn't do anything for her. So even though she was excited at the beginning, if it doesn't do anything for her, she's lost that. And yet, if instead we can help people to understand from the very beginning that it's not just about him achieving climax, it's about both of you figuring out what feels good to each other. And that's a learning process and it is gonna be awkward and it's okay for it to be awkward, but it isn't selfish for her to want something else, then instead of just diminishing that bank account, we're gonna be building into it, right? Even if she doesn't, even if it takes her a couple of years to figure out the orgasm piece or whatever, if she feels cared for, if she feels like he's trying to work at this, then things are gonna work. But because we tend to see it from a male point of view, often she doesn't say anything and then she ends up really resenting sex later. And he's like, why doesn't my wife ever want me? I wouldn't have gotten married. I wouldn't have signed up for a sexless marriage. Um, but, you know, a lot, of, we, we deal with this too, but what is our definition of a sexless marriage? We often talk about marriages where sex happens, you know, less than 10 times a year or never with different definitions. But if you've had sex twice a week for 10 years, right? So that's what, a thousand times? And she's never orgasmed. She's had a sexless marriage. Mm. You know? <laughs> and and I, I think we need to start understanding that it, that mutual peace is very important.
0: Yeah, definitely. Um so what I think I hear you saying is sex is really intimacy. Um you know, it's really about connecting with someone, communicating with someone in a very vulnerable, open way. Um, you know, whether that's that doesn't feel good that does feel good or i need something else here um and you know you mentioned earlier you know that women often don't know um you know especially if they've been uh, imbibing some of these messages we've been talking about um you don't know what you don't know and so then if you don't even know what you know you have this idea that intercourse is one thing um you know that it's a, a passive act on your part and an active part on the man's part and uh and that's not enough, but you don't know that that's okay for it not to be enough. I mean, you can see where the difficulties would spiral. Yeah, that's, this is really fascinating. You are uh, blowing my mind and in a lot of good ways. Um, So we talked a little bit about, oh, go ahead.
1: Let me me just deal with that for a second. I'm generation X. Okay. So I grew up with happy days the happy days to come. I don't know how like you may, that might have been before your time. But the, 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 Richie Cunningham, who is kind of like the all American boy, uh, teenage boy, their their goal in life was to get girls up to the makeout place, Blueberry Hill. And, you know, they would they would make out that's all they ever did. It wasn't sex It was just like, whatever kissing whatever and then he had this song that he would sing afterwards you know i found my thrill on blueberry hill and it was this thing that happened on happy days all the time and you know we got thinking about this as we were looking at what why a lot of women don't know what they want and why sex doesn't feel good for a lot of women and i think it's because we've missed the progression of what sex is supposed to be so if you think about it there is a natural progression to arousal right like you start out just holding hands then maybe light kissing then it gets deeper kissing you know you start touching each other in various ways you maybe you bring you start trying to arouse each other in various ways and then you get to intercourse and the 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 key thing is that those things build on each other but as christians who who have a biblical sexual ethic you know we don't want to have sex until we're married and so you try to stay away from things that might naturally lead to sex and yet what happens then is that you get married and you go from zero to 60 right away and you skip a lot of steps. You know, the, why is it that we don't want teenagers making out? You know, it's not because we think kissing is a sin necessarily, although some people might think that, but it, it, t- it doesn't tend to be that. It's because we know that if you kiss for long enough, you're going to want to do something more, you know? And if you do something more for long enough, you're going to want to do the next step. And so we just need to be careful there. And I totally understand that and totally support that. But we still need to remember that sex is a progression. And the reason that making out was fun for a lot of teenagers is because it wasn't going anywhere. They could just enjoy making out. So they would make out for like two hours and it felt amazing and you were all aroused and everything, but then you stopped because you weren't going to have sex. Like that's what happy days was about, right? Again, I'm not trying to say all teenagers should make out, but I think we need to realize that um, when we skip steps, she is never going to understand how to listen to her body. Mm -hmm. Because when you make out, your body tells you, okay, now I want to be touched. And when you're touched, your body tells you, oh, now I really want to be touched in this particular place or in this particular way. But the reason she can't tell him what she wants is because her body has never had anything to tell her because they skip right to sex before she's aroused. And so what we're trying to say is we need to bring that that arousal piece (laughs) and we need to figure that out as a couple. You know, you need to figure that out. Even if... That means that when you start marriage, you go back to step one and you do things really slowly and deliberately. Um, or if you've been married for 10 years, you still go back to step one and you say, you know what, let's try this again and see if she can figure out how to listen to her body so that her body is saying, yeah, let's do that because sex is never going to feel very good unless she's able to listen to her body.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and I'll throw out too um, – that, you know, men can listen to women's bodies too, you know, um, yeah. I've, and just kind of reading people and feeling their energy and, and kind of, you know, figuring it out and, and obviously communicating as well. Um, so we talked a little bit about the, the books, uh, other books that you looked at as part of your survey and your research. Um, what is one important topic that all of those best-selling evangelical sex and marriage books left out?
1: Well, so we looked at the best-selling marriage ones, the best-selling sex ones, but then we also looked at the best-selling secular marriage book to use as a control. Mm. So, you know, how does the best-selling secular one do? We chose John Gottman's Seven Principles for Making Marriage Work, which is actually a very good book. Um, And that one on our rubric scored 47 out of 48. It was also the only book of all of the ones that we looked at that mentioned the word consent when it comes to marriage. Um, and in fact, that was the one element of, of healthy sexual teaching. That was the lowest scoring across all of the books. A few books did, did give reasons why a woman um, may want to say no, or you, know, may, you know, why guys shouldn't pressure her to say no, but they didn't specifically talk about consent. Um, and marital rape, a lot of the books had um, anecdotes of marital rape without calling them that. Um, his needs, her needs had a, had a guy saying, she never wants sex, I feel like I'm raping her. But they never gave any caveat that raping your wife is wrong. Um, in The Act of Marriage by Tim LaHaye, they tell a story of Aunt Matilda, um, whose husband had to hold her down and force her while she was kicking and screaming on their wedding night and continued to do this through the marriage and then Tim LaHaye as he's talking about this says Aunt Matilda and her equally unhappy husband so he called the rapist and Tim LaHaye actually used the word rape but he still called the husband equally unhappy to his wife because they had never been able to figure out how to make sex feel good and he was blaming the wife's attitude for this um, every man's battle has multiple uh, incidences of rape and abuse, which they never call that and instead portray the guy as the victim because now he no longer has his purity or he has lusted, but they never give any thought to the effect on the woman. Um, and so we just see this again and again in books where where women are not and where husbands are not told, you know, it's not okay to just take something from her. And when we did our focus groups um, – You know, in in our follow-up groups, not everybody left their email, but of the people who left their email, 20% of women said that they had stories of marital rape to share with us. And when we interviewed a lot of those women, what they said was that they didn't have a word for what had happened to them because they didn't realize it was rape. Because they didn't think you could rape your wife. So they were running around trying to lock doors behind them. They were curling up in a ball um while well, he forced himself but they didn't they didn't necessarily recognize it as a red flag
0: wow that is just uh heartbreaking and uh, mm-hmm. stomach-wrenching um yes.
1: and what really bothered me was that the secular book got it right like what's wrong with us where is the discernment in the christian church and please can we change the conversation and do this better
0: yeah absolutely Um, I, I love the seven principles for making marriage work. Um, you know, I, I've said before that I think that should be required reading for the human race. Um, (laughs) and, uh, that's, it's, so it's good to hear that it scored very well on your rubric and included that important element. I'd be curious to hear your thoughts about how consent, um, ranging consent ranging from obviously the extremes that you were just sharing, but even to just, honey, I just don't really feel like it's tonight. you know? Um, you know, there's a, I think a pretty big continuum there. Um, and I think any couple who's been married, you know, for a while knows what I'm talking about, you know, yeah. um, there's sometimes some amount of discussion and negotiation that needs to happen. And so, um, I'm curious to hear your thoughts about the connection, if any, between consent on that spectrum and uh, seeing women as whole people.
1: Yeah, and I, I think that one of the problems is that we tend to view sex as something that women owe men, like it's an entitlement in marriage. Um, I do believe that sex is part, is a vital part of a healthy marriage, but that healthy is the key word to me, and often when there are sex problems in a marriage or um, where the couple just isn't having sex, the, the thing that's identified as the problem is the frequency. You know, so, so it's like you need to have sex more. You need to have sex more. And what we found is that frequency is not the issue. Like if you give her a good marriage and give her something to look forward to, it's very rare that she won't have, that, sh- that she'll never have sex. Like if you look at the marriages where sex very, very rarely happens or totally sexless marriages, it's very rare that she orgasms frequently and that she feels close to her husband, like almost non-existent. So, you know, if you want frequency to happen, what I found is you need to give her something to look forward to and you need to make sure she's not exhausted. So, you know, if you get those two pieces right, it's very rare for there actually to be a big problem with frequency. And so, and yet often in the church, when we when we give messages about sex, we focus so much on how you need to do this often, you need to do this often. And it's like, well, if she's not doing it often, maybe it's better to ask why is she not doing it? Because if we could just identify the why, we could solve the underlying problem. Because her just going through the motions does not help anybody. <laughs> like She's gonna resent it. She's gonna start to feel like sex is gross. She's just using me he's going to feel like she doesn't really want me. And so he'll start initiating even more to try to prove to himself that she does want him and she'll feel even more put upon and it's just going to drive a big wedge. Whereas if they just step back and say, okay, hold on a second. You don't seem to be into this. Let's figure out why. That's a much healthier way to go about it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Um, And sometimes it might be as simple as just figuring out, you know, we're on different, we have different bedtime routines, you know? (laughs)
1: Yes, just go to bed at the same time, you
0: know? Yeah, Yeah, sometimes it's a simple thing. Um, So one thing you talked about, the harmful beliefs um, that you measured are common beliefs in the evangelical cultural world, um, but you wouldn't necessarily call them Christian beliefs. Um, So what would you say are Christian beliefs about sex, and how are those different from those common beliefs in evangelical culture?
1: Yeah, so a big part of what we're trying to do in the book is to take the things that church people say a lot and that end up hurting couples and then reframe them in a way that we do think is biblical. So for instance, something that we say all the time is if your husband is typical, he has a need you don't have, okay? That's Emerson Edwards in love and respect, right? Meaning that if, you know, in a typical world, she doesn't want sex and he does. Now, if we say that long enough, then women are just going to hear, I don't want sex. Girls are going to grow up thinking sex is for boys and not for me. And then we wonder why women have no libido. (laughs) So it would be a much healthier thing to say, you know, God made us as sexual beings. You know, and some of us feel more of a desire for sex than others, you know, and often men more than women, but not necessarily, (laughs) you know, and sex is a good thing in marriage. And let's see how we can, um, as married people, awake our sexuality so that it is something which is life-giving in our marriage. You know, there's something which is a much more nuanced way of looking at it, but which is also far closer to what the Bible says. And too often the things that we say in Christian circles, like all men lust, um, like men are visual. You know, people are visual. <laughs> you know, often men more than women, but not always. <laughs> and we- we like looking at beautiful things, but we should never judge people only on the outside. And we should make sure that we treat everybody with respect, right? Like you can take these things that we typically say, but you can reframe them. So they point back to Jesus as the source (laughs) of our health. And so they point us to intimate, healthy relationships. And that's what we're hoping to do. Because often, you know, what we do in the Christian world too often is we make men sound like pigs and we make women sound like the solution to men's pigginess. And quite frankly, none of that is very sexy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's well put. Um, so what is your hope for the book as a whole? Is there a way to, to reframe the way that the church talks about sex that it, so that it's healthier?
1: I sure hope so. I really do. That is our prayer. Like, like I said, I have been blocking for so long. I've been giving all this great information, you know, how to initiate sex, how to spice things up, how to make it feel better. And everybody still at the same issues. Right. And so what I'm hoping is that we can put to rest all of these negative teachings. And we're hoping that because this is such a large survey, you know, because this has actually got some real data behind it, the people will pay attention, and they will realize, okay, what we've been saying hasn't been working, and we need to figure out how to stress what is healthy <laughs> instead, and I'm just hoping there's a sea change in the conversation. I think the time is right. I think people are realizing how toxic this is. I think people really want marriages that are fun. And, uh, and, 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 you know, if you've been in a sexual rut to realize, okay, maybe it's not my fault. Maybe I just grew up with some of these really bad messages. And if I can just get rid of them, we can find real freedom. I think that's a good, hopeful thing. And I really believe the book, as much as it just, talks about all these terrible things the church has done. It's actually quite a hopeful message. It's a fun read. I mean, it's almost like watching a train wreck in some ways, like you can't look away. It's like, oh, it can't get worse. Oh, it can't get worse. Oh my gosh, it's Aunt Matilda. Like it's it's (laughs) just so bad. But then it's like, no wait. but it doesn't need to stay this way. And so I'm hoping people feel validated, people feel seen and people feel like, okay, we actually can put this behind us. We actually have a roadmap now. And maybe in the future, when more books are written, they won't make the same mistakes.
0: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I like to say that the the world is the way it is because we made it this way. (laughs) (laughs) And if we made it this way, well, we can make it a different way. Um, And obviously, having education and information and a roadmap can help us greatly in that that effort. Um, Sheila, is there any thing else you want to to tell people and want them to know about the book or about your work um, besides where they can buy it and and all of that? (laughs)
1: yeah well you can find it anywhere books are sold great sex rescue releases march 2nd again if you want to download our rubric of 12 marks of healthy sexuality and and our scorecard for different books so that you can also apply the rubric to stuff that you're reading i think that would be wonderful um i'll give you the link that you can share uh, to people that are listening um but i do blog every day at to we have our podcast that goes along with that where we where we deconstruct a lot of these teachings and try to point to what is healthy so Um, join me over there and be part of the community. It's a pretty big one, and we have a lot of fun. Wonderful.
0: Thank you so much, Sheila, for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Well, thanks for having me.
0: Okay, that was a great conversation, and I just want to reiterate a couple key points. First of all, go buy the book. Uh, Second, I think it's so important, as Sheila pointed out, as we talked about, to reframe sex as intimacy because when we do that, um, just so many good things flow from that. Um, I also think it's really important to reframe our ideas as Christians about healthy boundaries. You know, we often think of boundaries as uh, things that we uh, are saying don't do or don't do to us or around us, um, but they can also be asserted. You know, we can also assert this is what I want you to do. You know, this is what is intimate or is not intimate for me. Um, this is what uh, feels good or doesn't feel good, this facilitates having the time and energy and closeness necessary versus this does not facilitate those things. Um, And so I think this book goes a long way, and this conversation even goes a long way toward helping us to rethink some of the narratives that we have imbibed through evangelical subculture and American culture in general, really, and uh, find a better way forward. You know, no matter what may or may not have happened in our past, when we know better, we can do better. As always, thank you for listening and subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes with Rebecca, Joanna, and other really interesting people. Um, And rate and review us wherever you listen. Thanks.